Praise the Lord. I won't take too long this morning, unless something happens, which I'm fine with. Um, but uh, I'd like for us just to spend a little bit of time in Acts chapter 19. I just want to speak a little bit further into what we've been talking about, about God, his kingdom, and his authority taking taking a place and taking a position in our city and in our nation. It's a really important time for us. A lot of people are paying attention when the nation celebrates 150 years. There's a lot said about it and a lot uh, on both sides. I know that there's some great celebration as well as there should be. I'm, I celebrated. I was excited about yesterday and wished it could have lasted a whole week. Um, but at the same time, there's some people that also see some flaws and, and see some things that could, have, could be improved or some things that might have caused harm in the past and they look at it a little bit differently. No matter what angle you come at, we know that as a nation, as a society in North America, as Western society, it's not a time right now where you look at it and go, it's trending in the right direction. You ever heard the phrase, um, I want to be on the right side of history. You heard that, right? We should be on the right side of history. I, I would agree with that, but the only problem is is that that presumes that culture's heading in the right direction. You know, if culture's heading in the right, right direction, then people can look back and judge history accurately. But guys, if we were to look back and look at history, we're, our society's not at a place where we could really even look at it with clear eyes because we, we're so twisted and perverted right now. So we might be on the wrong side of history for a while. You know, in Nazi Germany, I'm sure they looked back and had some people that they considered on the wrong side of history that we would now consider on the right side of history. It really doesn't matter whether you're on the right or wrong side of history. The question is, are we on the right or wrong side of God? And that's the only issue, isn't it? It doesn't matter what people think about us now or 100 years from now. It only matters what our Lord thinks about us. When you get to face him face to face, he doesn't, he's not going to consult a textbook. He's not going to consult uh, scholars. He's going to just say, have you done what I asked you to do? Were you faithful? And if we're faithful, that's what we're looking for. And that is really how you define the fear of God. One of the, one of the best ways I know to define the fear of God in that reverence and that awe for God the fear of God in my life is most often shown when I decide whose opinion I'd rather have, I'd rather seek, and whose pleasure I'd rather have. The fear of God says his opinion, his pleasure, his desire, I'd rather have that than anybody else. The fear of man says I'd rather them like me. I'd rather please them. So you'll know who you fear. And when I'm talking about godly fear, I'm not talking about being scared of God. I'm talking about reverencing and honoring God. You'll know who you fear by the decisions you make and why you make them. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. In any case, in any case, you'll know why you do what you do because you'll look and say, why did I do that? Why did I make that decision? Who was I trying to please with that decision? If you're trying to please God, it will become evident because as Paul said in Galatians, we could not try to please people and be bondservants of Christ at the same time. So those, those worlds just don't mix too often. There's going to be points, just like if, if I were headed to Calgary and you were headed to Jasper, we might drive on Highway 16 West for, the, for a bit and both be on the same highway, but it doesn't mean we have the same destination. So our interests might align with the worlds at times or it might look like they align, 
but have completely different outcomes, have two completely different goals, right? So there's going to be times where we've, you know, uh, give, you an, give you examples in the Bible. There were times where God used nations like Egypt or Babylon or, you know, all these, he used different nations um, to do something for Israel, to, to, to be in a position where they could help or, they, or even that they would oppose somebody that needed to be opposed. There were times where God used, he used Cyrus, he used Persia um, to resettle Israel back in their homeland. But that doesn't mean that that nation was a godly nation by any stretch just means that God, above all things, could use them at times. So we, ha- we can't confuse when God is using a nation and he's working in it and we're, he- we're, on, the, we're on Highway 16 together for a while. It doesn't mean we're heading the same place. At some point, you might be in agreement with the people you work with about a, a government or a, a, about a, a policy or whatever, but they might still be headed to Calgary and you're headed to Jasper and at a certain point your paths will diverge and you have to decide who's, whose side you're really on. In Acts chapter 19, we, um, we come across a city that, believe it or not, was darker than our society is right now. So I said this earlier and I really, Tia and I were talking about this last night, I really think God prepares his people, you know, as we, we read, I think it was last week or the week before, how Jesus said, I'm telling you these things, that the world's not going to accept you, that they'll reject you, that, that, that persecution will come. He says, I tell you these things so that you won't stumble. Well, see, the reason he tells them that is not to just toughen them up and, and, and try to scare them off. He's telling them that because if he prepares them, then when it comes, they don't say, what did I do wrong? They don't say, oh, I must have done something wrong. People are mad at me. They go, oh, he, he promised me this would happen, and he said he'd stick with me. So it's important that the church is not coddled to the point where you don't expect that at some point someone's going to oppose you, and you know that God is for you. And if God is for you, who could be against you? Right. And you know that Jesus has overcome the world, so you're not afraid of the world. So when the time comes that you're feeling the pressure from the outside, the pressure of the, from the inside will be stronger than the pressure from the outside, which will keep you from being crushed and destroyed. Thank you, Jesus. So you're not surprised when someone, what did, what did Peter say? Don't be shocked. James said the same thing. He said, don't be shocked as if some strange thing were happening to you. Don't you know that all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted? So don't, don't think I did something wrong. Say, well, this might be evidence that I did something right. It might not be evidence either way because when you do something right, you don't judge whether you're doing something right or wrong by how the world reacts to you. Right? Sometimes you do the right thing and there is nothing but blessing <laughs> that you see. And sometimes you do the right thing and there's nothing but opposition. But you don't judge whether it's right or wrong based on how people reacted. You judge whether it's right or wrong based on God, his word, and his spirit. Come on now. Right? Come on now. Yes. So as believers, we look around and go, man. And I, what I've noticed is, is that a lot of times I'm talking with other believers and we talk about the end and they talk about how dark things are getting and they talk about it in a hunched over defeatist attitude like it's gonna just get real bad the church should not be defeatist it's gonna get darker but if you've read the scripture it's gonna get lighter the darkness will get darker and the light will get lighter so why aren't we talking more about that the glory of the lord will arise 
The people of God will arise, shine, for the glory of the Lord has come upon them. They will pick up the armor of light, for the days are evil. They will stand in that place and shine like stars. So we got to quit talking like it's the great defeat, because the Bible tells us that the greatest harvest in the history of the planet is ahead of us. What is that telling you? The gospel is going to take more ground than you've ever expected it's going to take. So we're going to see things get darker, but the, darker, the reason we see it getting darker is not just because people have embraced the, the, the enemy's lies. That's part of it. But you're going to see it get darker because the light is lighter. And when the light is lighter, it exposes darkness. The lie we can tell ourselves is that this stuff wasn't around. It's just coming into the open now. And we live in a society where at one point in time, you could be an unbeliever, unrepentant, unsaved, going to hell, and still be considered a nice Christian. Nobody ever asked you to receive Jesus. Nobody ever asked you to confess the Lord. Nobody asked you to give your life away. It's just this is what we all do, isn't it? Everybody in our town is this, right? We're not anything else. So we show up to the church and the preacher says something and then we get to go home and I can't wait until he finishes so I can go eat. And, 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 and it was acceptable, in fact, encouraged in our culture. You know, when my, mine and Tia's ancestors um, lived together in New Haven, Connecticut, they didn't marry each other, didn't have kids together. So we're not kissing cousins. We are just kissing neighbors, all right? So... <laughs> Our ancestors founded New Haven, Connecticut, founded Newark, New Jersey together back in the, in the early 1600s, mid-1600s. And if you didn't go to church and pay your tithe, they just took it out of your taxes. <laughs> well, you were expected to go. You'd get in trouble for skipping too many Sundays. My ancestor got, got in trouble for not bringing his gun to church. Different times, right? <laughs> One time he got in trouble for not bringing any ammunition because what good's a gun without ammunition, right? You never know if somebody's going to attack you during a church service. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get any ideas, guys. Come on. But uh, the problem with that is is that it was a cultural pressure bringing people to a form of godliness. But you know in the last days there's going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, ungrateful, unholy, disobedient to parents, irreconcilable people, all of these brutal haters of good, malicious gossips. The scripture tells us these people are going to rise and it says they will have the form of godliness but deny the power thereof. So our society for a long period of time, let me tell you the last days isn't starting now. The last day started day of Pentecost. We're probably in, we're in the last of the last. But guys, our society had a very good form of godliness, but in many places, and I thank God for, the, for some godly things that were put into our government, godly things that influence society, but we should not confuse that with the real working of the power of God in people's lives because we all, you know as well as I do, people showed up at church and played nice. And some were saved and some weren't because it was, it, it was a good thing to go to church and it was a bad thing not to. Well, now, in a lot of places, you'll look at the Angus Reid polls will tell you, if you watch CTV or CBC when they run a poll about religion, which I haven't in a long time, but you can read it and check it out. They say that um, church attendance in Canada is decreasing. 
right? And and it looks doom and gloom until you realize that the church attendance that's decreasing is the very just culturally acceptable going to a church that really doesn't believe much of anything and you show up and be seen and make some business connections and then you go home. That church attendance is, is declining because people say, what's the point of this? But if you'll look, spirit-filled, gospel, word-preaching, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving churches are growing all over Canada. Praise the Lord. So the big number looks like it's decreasing, but I'll tell you what's happening is that the nominal Christians that didn't believe it and just showed up, it's no longer profitable for them to do that. They're not going to church anymore. But people are getting saved. This is about what we need. I'm happy about that. Let the line be drawn that there's a line. You believe or you don't. Get on the right side of the line. Because you know when those disciples, when they came to Jesus, I mean when they, when they preached Jesus after the resurrection, there was no benefit for them to do that if not for the, for the fact that they really believed it. I mean, there was a lot of cons and not a lot of pros as far as society was concerned. So when they went and they proclaimed Christ, you knew they meant it because they had everything to gain in the natural from forsaking Jesus. But what did Jesus say? If you lose your life, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. And when we were in Vietnam, where uh, Brother Kwong and Sister too, where they've founded some centers over there and, and, and Kwong's brother is, is still overseeing those, you know, there's Christians gathering regularly and there's no benefit to them gathering if not for Jesus, right? I mean, it, it, they're risking some things. They're putting their reputation on the line. They're putting their lives on the line. And there's, there's nobody that's going to say, oh, good for you, you go to church. I mean, they're, they're putting themselves on the line. But the reason they're there is because they believe. That's where the church in Canada is coming to right now. And it's not a terrible place to be in. We've got to believe that the gospel will win. So I want to, I, I, I'm going to try to keep this as, as concise as I can. But I want to just spend a little bit of time talking to you about the city of Ephesus. city of Ephesus, in 52 AD, Paul and his friends Priscilla and Aquila, who was a married couple that preached the gospel together, showed up in the harbor of Ephesus. And when they pull up in the harbor of Ephesus, which had been somewhat man, uh, man-created, there was originally a natural harbor there, but it got filled up. But they dug it out again so that there'd be a stream that you could go in. And it was, it was known as the gateway to Asia. And when we talk about Asia, it's not what we say Asia now, but the Roman province of Asia, which would have been Syria, which would have been what's now Turkey. And uh, this was the gateway to a whole big part of the empire. When they pull up, In that harbor, all different nationalities and cultures, Ephesus was full of people from Egypt, people from Rome, people from Greece, people from Syria, people from up north where, you know, Byzantium, Constantinople later, and now Istanbul, people were coming from there. People would gather at Ephesus because it was the gateway to all these other things. So if you walked in and you parked your boat and you got off in the harbor, you would have heard all different types of languages. You would have gone directly there. As soon as you get off the boat, you go to the bathhouses because you're all dirty. You need to get clean before you go in the city. Go to the bathhouses, get washed up. Then you enter this beautiful walkway 
called the Akkadian, and in that there'd be columns and colonnades with shops and, and really cool architecture, and it was just lined. In fact, they were so rich in Ephesus that if you looked at your feet, the, the, the street was actually beautiful mosaics. As you're walking along that street, and you're, you're seeing all these different things and cultures here. What you're also seeing almost immediately as you get, as you, as you enter the harbor and get off the boat, is one of the world's largest slave markets. Massive. You keep walking down that street and you see a giant theater, huge amphitheater. This giant open-air amphitheater could seat thousands and thousands of people. If you were to turn left and, and, and go this way, you would see the gladiatorial arenas where slaves were brought regularly to kill one another. Another thing that the Ephesians love is they cheered on when someone would be hacked to death and bleed all over the place and die. They also cheered and loved when people would be, innocent people with no weapons would be thrown and wild beasts would be sicked on them. Later, that punishment was used for Christians. Crowds would gather to watch them being eaten by wild animals. In fact, if the wild animals didn't seem like they wanted them, what they'd often do is sew them up in animal skins so they smelled good to the animals. In that theater that's at the end of the colonnade, when Paul first got there, it was mainly used for plays and comedies and things like that. Later on, when the persecution of the church began, theaters like that were used to take Christians, dress them up in lewd costumes, and force them to do acts together that defiled their conscience, and everybody would laugh and clap for it. It was in this theater, this grand theater, that Gaius and Aristarchus were dragged in front of thousands of people and condemned for ruining the economy of Ephesus. So Paul and Aquila and Priscilla pulled up. They immediately go to the synagogue of the Jews. They're accepted, they're welcomed. Paul has made a vow that he's, he's taken a Nazarene vow, and the Nazarene vow meant he had to go back to Jerusalem. So he goes back to Jerusalem, he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. He goes back to Jerusalem, and in the meantime, he visits Antioch, and he strengthens his church there. He goes and he, he does some ministry, but then he comes back. In the meantime, Priscilla and Aquila have found a Jewish believer named, uh, named Apollos who's been preaching what he thought was the gospel, basically he's a guy that, that knows about Jesus, probably believes Jesus is the Messiah, but doesn't really know much more than that. But he's reasoning in the synagogues. And they take him aside and they, they explain the way of God more fully to him. And he becomes a powerful preacher of the gospel. See, he's from Alexandria, which is an Egyptian city with the largest library in the world that that city has become the center for intellectual debate and thought. So this guy can get up and he could debate with anyone, but they teach him about the power of God and the message of the gospel and the message of Christ. He becomes a radical believer, preaches not only there, and he's eventually sent to the Corinthians to be a minister there. So things are happening. Paul comes back to Ephesus. He encounters 12 disciples. And these disciples only know about the baptism of John. It's like they're in a time warp. Because, you know, news spread throughout the empire. It's not like they had the internet. They don't all know that everything's going on. So these people had the message of repentance through John had spread. These guys had the message of John, but they didn't have the message of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They might have known a little bit about Jesus, but they didn't know the fullness of the gospel. Paul says, you guys are in for a treat. 
and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They become radical disciples, and Paul goes back to the synagogue. But the Bible tells us that when he goes back to the synagogue of the Jews, eventually there are people there that begin to hate the word he's preaching. And they begin to speak evil things about them. That word in the Greek, when it talks about speaking evil, doesn't mean that they're saying, oh, that's, you're full of baloney. That's, that's a load of garbage. It means that they come up with crafted uh, lies and slander about him and about his ministry. Well, a little bit more about Ephesus. If you kept walking, you get to the main market. I'm sure when he came up there with Priscilla and Aquila, they would have looked and there was a giant statue of the emperor Claudius. Because when they first got there in 52 AD, Claudius was still emperor. Big statue of Claudius in the middle of the market. Aquila and Priscilla might not have liked that because they were Jews from Rome. And Claudius was the guy that kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So they see his statue. They might not have been too warm and fuzzy on the inside. But if you kept going, there's a, a gate that they came in, the north gate, that's coming from the harbor. There's a gate that leads to Philosopher's Square and leads to some of the other parts of the city. And then there's a southwest gate. And the southwest gate leads directly to the temple. A temple of an Egyptian god. This god was the husband of Isis, known of God of the underworld, of death, of fertility, of medicine. And in this temple, Serapis, the temple of Serapis, was some of the most dark, occultic, demonic, sexually perverse activity you've ever heard of. And you could only enter if you were a true believer because there were secrets inside. This is at the very center point of the city because the Egyptians had come into Ephesus just like the Greeks and the Romans had come into Ephesus. And they had brought this dark cult into the city. If you kept walking, there was a street where there were lots of shops and, and, and stuff. There were lots of brothels because to them in this culture, brothels were no big deal. It was just expected. In fact, in the bath, bathhouses of Rome, it was expected. There were special rooms. If you want to do this with prostitutes, you can do this with prostitutes. If you want to do this with other men, you can do this with other men. And I don't mean to insult, you, or insult your intelligence or your conscience today. Uh, we won't get into any details, but it was perverse. Mm -hmm. As they walked down this street towards the great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, along the street, priests of Artemis would whirl about in violent emotion, dance crazily. People would perform obscene acts in that city. In fact, it was in that street that history tells us Timothy, as an old man, stood and, said, and, and rebuked them and said, you shouldn't act this way, and they beat him to death. As you went on to the temple of Artemis, it's one of the biggest temples in the world. Big statue of Artemis at the, the beginning. And this Worship of Artemis in Ephesus was different than the worship of Artemis anywhere else because they had mixed some different cultures together. See, I fully believe that the devil doesn't mind mis mixing cultures together when it's darkness mixing with darkness. You know what doesn't work? Darkness mixing with light. That's right, that's right. Back to the market. We'll get back to Artemis in a minute. But back to the market. 
In the middle of the market was something called a tolos. The tolos was a place where you would offer sacrifices to the gods and goddesses. And in the tolos, you would offer sacrifices so that your business, every morning, all the merchants would come and offer sacrifices so that business would go well. They had altars spread throughout so that if in the middle of the day you felt like buttering the bread of the gods or goddesses that you worship, you could go. If things weren't going that well, you'd go and worship. So the idolatry was so woven into their fabric of their culture that it was normal for you to just leave your business for five minutes, take a break, and go offer another sacrifice. This is the city. Now, we all get depressed sometimes. People get depressed about the way our culture is going. But let me tell you, it's been darker before. And the gospel still won. Gospel still won. We were talking about this TNI last night. Have you ever considered that it could get darker and the gospel could still win and both those things could live side by side? See, we sometimes think it's going to be one or the other. But I, I, I believe it's fully possible that the culture gets darker and the gospel gets more and more pre- prevailing and powerful. Yeah. And the glory of God is seen more and more. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that one is, one is not happening. It could completely happen. And I believe revival heals a nation. And I pray that our nation would turn. But revival is not dependent on everybody getting on board. It's just dependent on the people of God getting on board. And the gospel being preached with power and demonstrated with power. So to Acts 19, we've hopefully given you some background there. Acts 19, verse 8 says, He entered the synagogue, this is Paul, continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, the way being what they called the the Christians of that time, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. The school of Tyrannus was in the middle of a place in Ephesus that was called Philosopher's Square. And this is where people from across the empire would come to share ideas. It was basically like an open-air university. And the school of Tyrannus was a very well-respected place. And he brought the disciples. Here's the deal. In a city like that, the synagogue of the Jews would likely have been a little bit out of the way. But Philosopher Square was in the middle of the city. Do you guys believe that the gospel can stand in the middle of a city? I believe it can. Do you believe that the gospel is, is, is so weak that, that you have to shelter it? Or do you believe it can stand up in the most hostile of environments? Amen. So he brought the disciples to the school of Tyrannus right in the middle of Philosopher's Square. And pagans and Jews alike would come by and be like, what's this guy talking about? And the gospel was being preached and disciples were being made and the word was spreading. Here's what it says. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul stayed in one place for two years, so he wasn't spreading the gospel through all of Asia. Who was? The people that came from that school, the people that came that were being taught the word, it spread. Let me tell you, the, the, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is way more powerful in the hands of thousands of saints than in just one guy. But as that one guy taught, they heard, and they weren't just learners of the gospel. They were carriers of the gospel. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. How many of you believe we're going to see extraordinary miracles in this day and age? 
Amen? Don't you believe that, that if we're talking about the way culture's gone to the far edges, don't you think we're going to have to see extraordinary miracles? Don't you believe that? I do. Extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs, and let me, just, let me just say this. If there's extraordinary miracles, that means that there were ordinary miracles. Can you just believe that, that we would get to the place, not that we'd ever become bored or complacent, but that we would be so ready to flow in the spirit of God that miracles would become ordinary to us and we'd pay attention when they just get extraordinary? <laughs> we'd still pay attention, but man, miracles should be a part of our life. Extraordinary miracles were taking place. Handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried away from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now, he uses three words here, sick, diseased, and evil spirits. The word sick that it's used in the Greek is not a headache or a tummy ache. This is, this is very sick. Disease is even worse. People that would be housebound, people that would, that would be un- incurable. And then it uses a word here that is, was only used for demonic oppression. For sicknesses that they believed, even the unbelievers believed, there's something spiritual happening because nothing could cure them. They never got better. Never got better. You were considered terminal, chronic, you're not going to get better. And the scripture tells us that there are times where somebody's sick. There's somebody, times that somebody was diseased, but you know Jesus healed some people by casting out a spirit out of them. Yeah. So there are sometimes somebody is just not getting well and sometimes it's just that their body's not working right. Sometimes it's just an outside environmental thing. Sometimes it's genetic. Sometimes it is straight up spiritual oppression. And the only thing that's going to help them is getting an evil, unclean spirit cast out of them. So spirits were coming out and people were getting healed. People, people uh, even Christians today, Christian scholars, I can think of a couple that I had to sell their books at the bookstore and didn't like it. A couple of them will make excuses and say, well, they thought they were evil spirits. They were just superstitious. They didn't understand. It was just, they don't understand what we understand now. It was just mental issues. It was this or that. Fair enough, but let me tell you something. When they cast out the evil spirit, people got better. It's kind of proof that the spirits were the problem. If it was just superstition, you'd cast out all the evil spirits in the world. They'd still have their problems. What's the proof that they were right, that it was evil spirits? Because when they cast evil spirits out, people got cured of things doctors couldn't cure them of. That's proof to me that they had it right, especially Jesus. I think you should, we should be insulted whenever a believer calls Jesus superstitious, <laughs> right? Anyways, moving on. Diseases left them, evil spirits went out. Praise the Lord. From also this place, Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered, let me just tell you something. These were not good, true Jews. These were people that had mixed their practices with the pagan, magical, sorcerous practices of Ephesus. These were not followers of the true God. These were people that had perverted their own faith. Their father's name, Sceva, was not a Hebrew name. It comes from a Greek name which meant left-handed, which in their culture meant deceitful trickery. It was probably a nickname he got. 
And he probably wasn't a chief priest by any Jewish law. He was probably a guy that called himself a chief. Anyways, he had these sons that went around casting spells over people to make them better. That was condemned in the Mosaic law. So these were not good Jews. But let me tell you something. Look what they say. I adjure you. Do you know what that word is in Greek? I beg you. I plead with you. They were not casting evil spirits out. They were negotiating. Because their belief, and you can look back in history, the belief of the time was if you can just satisfy these spirits, convince them, coax them to come out. What did Jesus do? Cast them out. Talked with authority. He didn't beg them. He didn't try to talk them out. You know what? Because an evil spirit's never going to do something that's going to make the person better. So they might leave them alone for a while so you think they're fine and just make it worse. I adjure you, I beg you, please, evil spirits. By this name, because they thought we found a new name, a new spell, a new abracadabra, open sesame, and it works. It didn't work for them. It says here, the man in whom, or sorry, the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? That's the last thing you want to hear. And maybe the last thing you do here. And the man in whom the evil spirit was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And listen to this. The name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. How could that magnify Jesus? Well, because people saw that's fake, and we know there now is a real. Jesus will be magnified when the people of God stand up in the power of God and it's demonstrated the difference between the two sorcerers that oppose Moses and Moses himself and Aaron who stood in the power of God. When believers stand up and show the real to the world, they'll know the difference between the fake and the real and Jesus will be magnified. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that by faith, the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea as though on dry land. And when the Egyptians tried to do the same thing, they were drowned. There are some things you're going to do by the power of God that when people try to copy you, they will fail miserably. And it'll be proof that only God got it done. Goes on and says this. I'm trying to hurry, guys. Many of these kept believed, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Listen to that. Confessing and disclosing their practices. This word practices in the original language means occultic, idolatrous practices. It's not just talking about, well, I lied or one time I stole something. It's directly related to stepping into some bad juju magumbo, some bad spiritual stuff. And they confessed it and they disclosed it. How many of you know if you really believe in the grace of God, the power of God, if you really believe in the grace of God, you're not ashamed to call sin, sin. You're not ashamed to call that because it's not yours anymore. If somebody's trying to self-justify themselves, they'll justify their sin. They'll try to make it seem like it wasn't so big because you're trying to self-justify. But Jesus doesn't need you to self-justify. He justifies you so you don't have to justify the garbage you were into before because it's not part of you. It's been removed from you as far as the east is from the west so you can call it what it is and not be ashamed. They confessed and disclosed in public. And here's what it says in verse 19. Many of those who practiced magic, there were something called the Ephesians letters, the letters of Ephesus, which was, were scrolls that people had that had a combination of words, letters, and numbers, which were supposed to bring you power. It was witchcraft. 
that were supposed to help your business do good or help your competitor do bad or bring harm on your enemies or good to your family. And people would carry these letters around. They would carry these sorcery, uh, scrolls of sorcery. And it cost them a lot of money. The more money you had, the more you spent on more of these letters, more of these um, uh, spells and, and, and methods of witchcraft. They brought them together. So they didn't have bound books because bound books didn't exist back then. So they had scrolls. And they brought them together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. Two thoughts. Number one, it was important to them that they burned it in sight of their neighbors that didn't believe the same as them. It was important that they made a clean cut. Second thought, they didn't burn their neighbor's books. You go, to, you go to Kohl's and buy all the bad books, you buy all the copies of the Quran, whatever you want, and come and burn them in public, that's dumb. You're just making them more money. Burn, you know, don't, don't worry about your neighbor's stuff. Worry about, you know, be concerned about your stuff. Get rid of that. That's what they did. They brought their own books. Men go to the bookstore, raid them, and, and burn them. They brought theirs, and they made a clean cut. And the price of them found at 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. That's a ton of money. So here is what it says here. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now next week I want to talk to you about what happens next. When they're opposed. And whether they, when they start a riot, but I want to talk to you just today and we'll wrap with this. The word was growing mightily. I want you to picture what it looks like for the word to grow mightily with us. It was spreading rapidly, it was growing mightily, and it was winning, it was prevailing. I just described to you and hope, I just, I, boy, there was a lot more I could have said about Ephesus. But I really didn't want to bring more glory to the darkness than to the light. I could have spent 20 minutes more talking to you about the trash that went on in that city. But I, what I did want you to see was this. Their city was darker than any city we've probably lived in. And yet the word won in their city. The word prevailed in their city. The word was growing mightily and was prevailing. Here's something I believe, and I believe to the core, and I believe it's borne out by the Scripture. The Word, and I've said this before, the Word will only grow mightily and win in our city when it grows mightily and wins in us. That's why it won in their city, because it won over them. If they had said, we'll take some of it, and we'll leave some of it. Ooh, this part I don't like, but this part I love. Do you know how much power that would have had in their city? None. People would say, well, you're just part of our great mosaic of a bunch of religions that we all believe. We all kind of do that. We take a little, we take a, you know, we take what we like and we leave what we don't. But it didn't. You know what was so offensive to their city? That they made a clean break. That's what began to win in the city was that it was winning in them. If the word wins in us, it'll win in our city. If it grows in us, it'll grow in our city. If it grows and it wins in us, I guarantee it will grow and it will win in your family. Because if your kids see God having his way in your life, they see a heart that's fully after Jesus. Listen, I'm not telling you, 
Because when they're an adult, they still got to make their own decisions. And that's not all your responsibility. But I will tell you, they won't be able to shake what they saw. They'll see the power of God was real in my house. They still have to make their choice. And you know what? I pray that they make it quick rather than later. But you will have left an indelible mark in them that you believe what you preached. You believe what you heard. God's not afraid of the dark. God is not afraid of the dark. It is greatly dark in certain places, but the gospel could stand up in Philosopher's Square and was not presented as philosophy in Philosopher's Square. I believe it was presented as truth and as power. Because if it had just been presented as philosophy, it wouldn't have spread throughout all of Asia. Right? And philosophy doesn't heal sick people. And philosophy doesn't cast out evil spirits. What kind of world are we living in? We're living in a world, listen, Ephesus was probably more demonically oppressed than most of the cities in the empire because of the stuff they let in. We'll talk more about this next week, but when they stood up and said, we are worshipers of Artemis, that word worshipers doesn't just mean people that worship and that go and hold her in high esteem. It meant guardians, protectors. They believed they were the protectors of that religion in that city. They were the gateway. They were the guardians of it, the wardens of it. So there was a demonic stronghold in that city that wasn't in a lot of places. They had let the worship of Serapis the Egyptian cult come in. In another part of the city, the women worshipped Isis, Artemis, and many others. And in these places, they had allowed and embraced some messed up spiritual forces. I believe it was a spiritual stronghold, and I believe it was exactly what they thought. It was the gateway to all of Asia. Do you know what happened when Ephesus came to Jesus? all of Asia opened up to the gospel. And when you read those first three chapters in the book of Revelation, you are reading Jesus' letters to the seven churches that started with Ephesus. Jerusalem's not in those churches. Antioch's not in those churches. Rome's not in those churches. Those were important churches. But those last seven letters that we read were to the seven churches of Asia that started with Ephesus. And you see in some of those letters that Jesus writes, he writes about one place and says, you live in a place where Satan has set up his footstool, but you have not denied my name. To him who overcomes, this is what I'll give you. To him who overcomes? He says, you live in Satan's stronghold and you're going to (laughs) overcome. I love it. Satan has no place to keep his feet, to keep his stronghold that's safe from us. Do you realize we've got to stop being so defensive and start realizing that the kingdom of darkness is terrified of us. It's terrified, but it's not terrified of nice church people. It's not. Why would you be? Some of the songs we sing are songs of battle. They're songs of might, of worship to our God. If we'd realize what we're singing, we'd we'd realize that it's more than just putting on a nice show here on a Sunday morning. And it's equipping the saints for work of ministry. It's, It's armoring the church for battle. 
It's worshiping our God, and when we worship our God, he reveals himself to us. I believe that many of you today, as we were in a time of worship, God spoke to you. As we took communion, God spoke to you. As I've been preaching the word of God this morning, God is speaking to you. And I, I say what, what the apostle said in the book of Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Embrace it, stand up, rise up, be who you are. The Bible says that we must be good stewards of the manifold, Greek word pikolos, which means diverse grace of God. Many shapes, many sizes, many colors. And I'm not talking about culture or ethnicity. I'm talking about the fact that the grace of God working in you looks different than the grace of God working in me because we have different jobs. So let's get it done and be good stewards of the power that's been entrusted to them that believe, that works towards us, that works through us, that works in us. I expect testimonies of radical confrontations with light and darkness and light winning. Can we say this over Lloydminster and believe it? That the word of God will grow mightily and will prevail in our city. Amen? It will grow mightily and prevail in Macklin, in Onion Lake, in Provost, in Maidstone, in all the rural area, in Paradise Valley. The word of God will grow mightily and it will win. But it better grow mightily and win in us. Because if it doesn't win in us, it won't win in our city. It's got to start in his own church. The Bible says it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. It starts here. It starts with us. God gave Kelly and Brian a word for this youth camp coming up that said, what about me? What, what, what about me? I'm, I'm so concerned about everybody else. I need to start right here with me. And say it starts here. It starts right now. It starts with me. I'm not waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. I'm not ready, waiting for the rest of the church. I'm starting right now. And if you can join your hands with, you know, throughout this week and throughout the next with some believers and bind together and quit trying to be you know, Indiana Jones and do it all by yourself and just get together and say, we got a city to take. How do you take a city? You know, I really don't think, sometimes we think of taking a city the way the world would take a city. But it's not. Be light where you are. Be Jesus where you are. Let Jesus work through you. Let him shine his light where you are, where he's placed you, and then stretch out a little bit. And then stretch out. Discover the sphere that he's placed you in and allow the grace of God to work in that sphere. And as he works in that sphere, it will be enlarged. Because if you're faithful with the little things, he'll make you ruler over many things. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up in intercession for our city right now.